Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Bygone Tales, episode 21. In this episode, we have one story by H.P. Lovecraft and Kenneth Sterling. So, without further ado, let's get to it. Now, H.P. Lovecraft has appeared in a few episodes of this podcast, so I'm sure you all know a little bit about his history. So, I'm going to devote this period to talking about his co-author on this story, Kenneth Sterling. Unless you work in the medical field you probably don't know the name. Kenneth J. Sterling was a medical doctor and prominent researcher on the topic of thyroid hormone and human metabolism. He made significant discoveries on thyroid hormone activation and treated patients at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center for over 30 years. Sterling was born in Baltimore, Maryland in 1920 or 1921. At age 14, Sterling became acquainted with H.P. Lovecraft when his family moved to Providence and he began attending classical high school. He saw Lovecraft frequently during this time, 1935 to 1936, then corresponded with him when he went to Harvard in the fall of 1936. He collaborated with Lovecraft on In the Walls of Irks, January 1936. Aside from the early memoir, Lovecraft and Science, in Marginalia, 1944, Sterling wrote the prominent reminiscent article, Caverns Measureless to Man, Science Fantasy Correspondent, 1975, about Lovecraft. This article quoted extensively from his letters to Lovecraft, which have not otherwise been widely available. It is hoped that his heirs will deposit these letters in an institution in the course of time. Lovecraft's letters to Sterling, as based on transcripts held by Arkham House, have been published in the volume H.P. Lovecraft, Letters to Robert Bloch and Others, edited by David E. Schultz and, and S.T. Josie, New York, Hippocampus Press, 2015. When he was 16, he enrolled in the undergraduate program at Harvard University, from which he graduated in 1940. As an undergraduate student, he published his first scientific paper at the age of 19. He then went to John Hopkins School of Medicine, where he earned his medical degree in 1943 at the age of 23. In 1958, Sterling joined Columbia University as a research associate at the College of Physicians and Surgeons. In 1962, he was appointed assistant clinical professor of medicine and became staff physician in nuclear medicine and director of the Protein Research Laboratory at the Department of Veterans Affairs Medical Center in the Bronx, New York City. In 1970, Sterling became Associate Clinical Professor of Medicine, later rising to full clinical professor in 1974. Sterling was one of the first researchers to use radioactive iodine to treat thyroid disease. He used radioisotopic labels to study the metabolism of human serum proteins and red blood cells. He discovered that the body converts the pro-hormone thyroxine into triiodothyronine, the primary active form of thyroid hormone. This breakthrough led to a new field of thyroid hormone research and led to the first early studies on the mechanism of action of thyroid hormones. Sterling developed the equilibrium dialysis method for measuring free thioxirine, which remains the gold standard for evaluating free hormone levels in blood today. Sterling was a pioneering investigator identifying mitochondrial thyroid hormone receptors, shortened isoforms, and the full-length nuclear receptors. 
He wrote a chapter on thyroid hormone receptors in the fifth edition of Werner's The Thyroid, a fundamental and clinical text, which is known as the Bible of Modern Thyroidology. In 1972, Sterling was awarded the William S. Middleton Award for Excellence in Research, the highest honor of the VA Medical Center. He was cited for developing the 51CR labeling of red blood cells for clinical applications. Sterling continued treating patients at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center up until a few days before he died. On January 12, 1995, while at his home in Riverdale, New York, at the age of 74, the probable cause of death was complications of an aneurysm. The International Workshop on Resistance to Thyroid Hormone, a biannual research forum, dedicated its third meeting to Sterling in 1997. Now, I just want to say all of this information that I just gave you came from Wikipedia. I knew of Kenneth Sterling because this is one of my favorite stories by H.P. Lovecraft, but I didn't know much about his history, and I, I just I find him to be a very fascinating individual. I hope you enjoy the story. In the Walls of Irks by H.P. Lovecraft and Kenneth Sterling Later, afternoon, 6.13 There has been more trouble than I expected. I am still in the building and will have to work quickly and wisely if I expect to rest on dry ground tonight. It took me a long time to get to sleep, and I did not wake till almost noon today. As it was, I would have slept longer but for the glare of the sun through the haze. The corpse was a rather bad sight, wriggling with syphiclets and with a cloud of Farnoth flies around it. Something had pushed the helmet away from the face, and it was better not to look at it. I was doubly glad of my oxygen mask when I thought of the situation. At length, I shook and brushed myself dry, took a couple of food tablets, and put a new potassium chlorate cube in the electrolyzer of the mask. I am using these cubes slowly, but wish I had a larger supply. I felt much better after my sleep, and expected to get out of the building very shortly. Consulting the notes and sketches I had jotted down, I was impressed by the complexity of the hallways and by the possibility that I had made a fundamental error. Of the six openings leading out of the central space, I had chosen a certain one as that by which I had entered, using a sighting arrangement as a guide. When I stood just within the opening, the corpse, fifty yards away, was exactly in line with a particular lepidodendron in the far-off forest. Now it occurred to me that this sighting might not have been of sufficient accuracy. The distance of the corpse, making its difference of direction in relation to the horizon, comparatively slight when viewed from the openings next to that of my first ingress. Moreover, the tree did not differ as distinctly as it might have from the other Lepidodendra on the horizon. Putting the matter to a test, I found to my chagrin that I could not be sure which of the three openings was the right one. Had I traversed a different set of windings at each attempted exit? This time, I would be sure. It struck me that despite the impossibility of trailblazing, there was one marker I could leave. Though I could not spare my suit, I could, because of my thick head of hair, spare my helmet. And it was large and light enough to remain visible above the thin mud. Accordingly, 
I removed the roughly hemispherical device and laid it at the entrance of one of the corridors, the right-hand one of the three I must try. I would follow this corridor on the assumption that it was correct, repeating what I seemed to recall as the proper turns, and constantly consulting and making notes. If I did not get out, I would systematically exhaust all other possible variations, and, if these failed, I would proceed to cover the avenues extending from the next opening in the same way, continuing to the third opening if necessary. Sooner or later, I could not avoid hitting the right path to the exit, but I must use patience. Even at worst, I could scarcely fail to reach the open plain in time for a dry night's sleep. Immediate results were rather discouraging, though they helped me eliminate the right-hand opening in little more than an hour. Only a succession of blind alleys, each ending at a great distance from the corpse, seemed to branch from this hallway, and I saw very soon that it had not figured at all in the previous afternoon's wanderings. As before, however, I always found it relatively easy to grope back to the central chamber. About 1 p.m., I shifted my helmet marker to the next opening and began to explore the hallways beyond it. At first, I thought I recognized the turnings, but soon found myself in a wholly unfamiliar set of corridors. I could not get near the corpse, and this time seemed cut off from the central chamber as well, even though I thought I had recorded every move I made. There seemed to be tricky twists and crossings too subtle for me to capture in my crude diagrams, and I began to develop a kind of mixed anger and discouragement. While patience would, of course, win in the end, I saw that my searching would have to be minute, tireless, and long-continued. Two o'clock still found me wandering vainly through strange corridors, constantly feeling my way, looking alternately at my helmet and the corpse, and jotting down data on my scroll with decreasing confidence. I cursed the stupidity and idle curiosity which had drawn me into this tangle of unseen walls, reflecting that if I had left the thing alone and headed back as soon as I had taken the crystal from the body, I would even now be safe at Terra Nova. Suddenly, it occurred to me that I might be able to tunnel under the invisible walls with my knife, and thus effect a shortcut to the outside, or to some outward-leading corridor. I had no means of knowing how deep the building's foundations were, but the omnipresent mud argued the absence of any floor save the earth. Facing the distant and increasingly horrible corpse, I began a course of feverish digging with the broad, sharp blade. There was about six inches of semi-liquid mud, below which the density of the soil increased sharply. This lower soil seemed to be of a different color a grayish clay rather like the formations near Venus's North Pole. As I continued downward close to the unseen barrier, I saw that the ground was getting harder and harder. Watery mud rushed into the excavation as fast as I removed the clay, but I reached through it and kept on working. If I could bore any kind of passage beneath the wall, the mud would not stop my wriggling out. About three feet down, however, the hardness of the soil halted my digging seriously. Its tenacity was beyond anything I had encountered before, even on this planet, 
and was linked with an anomalous heaviness. My knife had to split and chip the tightly packed clay, and the fragments I brought up were like solid stones or bits of metal. Finally, even this splitting and chipping became impossible, and I had to cease my work with no lower edge of the wall in reach. The hour-long attempt was a wasteful as well as futile one, for it used up great stores of my energy, and forced me both to take an extra food tablet and to put an additional chlorate cube in the oxygen mask. It has also brought a pause in the day's gropings, for I am still much too exhausted to walk. After cleaning my hands and arms of the worst of the mud, I sat down to write these notes, leaning against an invisible wall and facing away from the corpse. That body is simply a writhing mass of vermin now. The odor has begun to draw some of the slimy acmens from the far-off jungle. I notice that many of the effjaweeds on the plain are reaching out necrophagous feelers toward the thing, but I doubt if any are long enough to reach it. I wish some really carnivorous organism like the scoras would appear, for then they might send me and wriggle a course through the building toward me. Things like that have an odd sense of direction. I could watch them as they came and jot down their approximate route if they failed to form a continuous line. Even that would be a great help. When I met any, the pistol would make short work of them. But I can hardly hope for as much as that. Now that these notes are made, I shall rest a while longer, and later we'll do some more groping. As soon as I get back to the central chamber, which ought to be fairly easily, I shall try the extreme left-hand opening. Perhaps I can get outside by dusk, after all. Night. 6. 13. New trouble. My escape will be tremendously difficult, for there are elements I had not suspected. Another night here in the mud, and a fight on my hands tomorrow. I cut my rest short and was up and groping again by four o'clock. After about fifteen minutes, I reached the central chamber and moved my helmet to mark the last of the three possible doorways. Starting through this opening, I seemed to find the going more familiar, but was brought up short in less than five minutes by a sight that jolted me more than I can describe. It was a group of four or five of those detestable man-lizards emerging from the forest far off across the plain. I could not see them distinctly at that distance, but thought they paused and turned towards the trees to gesticulate, after which they were joined by fully a dozen more. The augmented party now began to advance directly toward the invisible building, and, as they approached, I studied them carefully. I had never before had a close view of the things outside the steamy shadows of the jungle. The resemblance to reptiles was perceptible, though I knew it was only an apparent one, since these beings have no point of contact with terrestrial life. When they drew nearer, they seemed less truly reptilian, only the flat head and the green, slimy, frog-like skin carrying out the idea. They walked erect on their odd, thick stumps, and their suction discs made curious noises in the mud. These were average specimens, about seven feet in height, and with four long, ropey pectoral tentacles. 
The motions of those tentacles, if the theories of Fogg, Ekberg, and Janat are right, which I formerly doubted, but am now more ready to believe, indicate that the things are an animated conversation. I drew my flame pistol and was ready for a hard fight. The odds were bad, but the weapon gave me a certain advantage. If the things knew this building, they would come through it after me, and, in this way, would form a key to getting out, just as carnivorous scoras might have done. That they would attack me seemed certain, for even though they could not see the crystal in my pouch, they could divine its presence through that special sense of theirs. Yet, surprisingly enough, they did not attack me. Instead, they scattered and formed a vast circle around me, at a distance which indicated they were pressing close to the unseen wall. Standing there in a ring, the beings stared silently and inquisitively at me, waving their tentacles and sometimes nodding their heads and gesturing with their upper limbs. After a while, I saw others issue from the forest, and these advanced and joined the curious crowd. Those near the corpse looked briefly at it, but made no move to disturb it. It was a horrible sight, yet the man-lizards seemed quite unconcerned. Now and then, one of them would brush away the Farnoth flies with its limbs or tentacles, or crush a wiggling Syphiclith or Ackman, or an outreaching Ephjaweed with the suction discs on its stumps. Staring back at these grotesque and unexpected intruders, and wondering uneasily why they did not attack me at once, I lost for the time being the willpower and nervous energy to continue my search for a way out. Instead, I leaned limply against the invisible wall of the passage where I stood, letting my wonder merge gradually into a chain of the wildest speculations. A hundred mysteries which had previously baffled me seemed all at once to take on a new and sinister significance, and I trembled with an acute fear unlike anything I had experienced before. I believed I knew why these repulsive beings were hovering expectantly around me. I believed, too, that I had the secret of the transparent structure at last. The alluring crystal which I had seized, the body of the man who had seized it before me, all these things began to acquire a dark and threatening meaning. It was no common series of mischances which had made me lose my way in this roofless, unseen tangle of corridors. Far from it. Beyond doubt, this place was a genuine maze, a labyrinth deliberately built by these hellish things whose craft and mentality I had so badly underestimated. Might I not have suspected this before, knowing of their uncanny architectural skill? The purpose was all too plain. It was a trap. A trap set to catch human beings, and with the crystal spheroid as bait. These reptilian things, in their war on the takers of crystals, had turned to strategy and were using our own cupidity against us. Dwight, if this rotting corpse were indeed he, was a victim. He must have been trapped some time ago and had failed to find his way out. Lack of water had doubtless maddened him, and perhaps he had run out of chlorate cubes as well. Probably his mask had not slipped accidentally after all. Suicide was a likelier thing. Rather than face a lingering death, 
He had solved the issue by removing the mask deliberately and letting the lethal atmosphere do its work at once. The horrible irony of his fate lay in his position, only a few feet from the saving exit he had failed to find. One minute more of searching, and he would have been safe. And now, I was trapped as he had been trapped, and with this circling herd of curious starers to mock at my predicament. The thought was maddening, and as it sank in, I was seized with a sudden flash of panic, which set me running aimlessly through the unseen hallways. For several moments, I was essentially a maniac, stumbling, tripping, bruising myself on the invisible walls, and finally collapsing in the mud as a panting, lacerated heap of mindless, bleeding flesh. The fall sobered me a bit, so that when I slowly struggled to my feet, I could notice things and exercise my reason. The circling watchers were swaying with their tentacles in an odd, irregular way suggestive of sly, alien laughter, and I shook my fist savagely at them as I rose. My gesture seemed to increase their hideous mirth, a few of them clumsily imitating it with their greenish upper limbs. Shamed into sense, I tried to collect my faculties and take stock of the situation. After all, I was not as badly off as Dwight had been. Unlike him, I knew what the situation was, and forewarned is forearmed. I had proof that the exit was attainable in the end, and would not repeat his tragic act of impatient despair. The body, or skeleton as it would soon be, was constantly before me as a guide to the sought-for aperture, and dogged patience would certainly take me to it if I worked long and intelligently enough. I had, however, the disadvantage of being surrounded by these reptilian devils. Now that I realized the nature of the trap, whose invisible material argued a science and technology beyond anything on earth, I could no longer discount the mentality and resources of my enemies. Even with my flame pistol, I would have a bad time getting away, though boldness and quickness would doubtless see me through in the long run. But first, I must reach the exterior, unless I could lure or provoke some of the creatures to advance towards me. As I prepared my pistol for action, and counted over my generous supply of ammunition, it occurred to me to try the effect of its blasts on the invisible walls. Had I overlooked a feasible means of escape? There was no clue to the chemical composition of the transparent barrier, and conceivably it might be something which a tongue of flame could cut like cheese. Choosing a section facing the corpse, I carefully discharged the pistol at close range and felt with my knife where the blast had been aimed. Nothing was changed. I had seen the flame spread when it struck the surface, and now I realized that my hope had been in vain. Only a long, tedious search for the exit would ever bring me to the outside. So, swallowing another food tablet and putting another cube in the electrolyzer of my mask, I recommenced the long quest, retracing my steps to the central chamber and starting out anew. I constantly consulted my notes and sketches and made fresh ones, taking one false turn after another, but staggering on in desperation till the afternoon light grew very dim. 
As I persisted in my quest, I looked from time to time at the silent circle of mocking stares and noticed a gradual replacement in their ranks. Every now and then, a few would return to the forest, while others would arrive to take their places. The more I thought of their tactics, the less I liked them, for they gave me a hint of the creature's possible motives. At any time, these devils could have advanced and fought me, but they seemed to prefer watching my struggles to escape. I could not but infer that they enjoyed the spectacle, and this made me shrink with double force from the prospect of falling into their hands. With the dark, I ceased my searching and sat down in the mud to rest. Now I am writing in the light of my lamp and will soon try to get some sleep. I hope tomorrow will see me out, for my canteen is low, and Lakehall tablets are a poor substitute for water. I would hardly dare to try the moisture in this slime, for none of the water in the mud regions is potable except when distilled. That is why we run such long pipelines to the yellow clay regions, or depend on rainwater when those devils find and cut our pipes. I have none too many chlorate cubes either, and must try to cut down my oxygen consumption as much as I can. My tunneling attempt of the early afternoon, and my later panic flight, burned up a perilous amount of air. Tomorrow, I will reduce physical exertion to the barest minimum until I meet the reptiles and have to deal with them. I must have a good cube supply for the journey back to Terra Nova. My enemies are still on hand. I can see a circle of their feeble glow-light torches around me. There is a horror about those lights which will keep me awake. Night, 6, 14 Another full day of searching, and still no way out. I am beginning to be worried about the water problem, for my canteen went dry at noon. In the afternoon there was a burst of rain, and I went back to the central chamber for the helmet which I had left as a marker, using this as a bowl and getting about two cupfuls of water. I drank most of it, but have put the slight remainder in my canteen. Lake Hall tablets make little headway against real thirst, and I hope there will be more rain in the night. I am leaving my helmet bottom up to catch any that falls. Food tablets are none too plentiful, but not dangerously low. I shall have my rations from now on. The chlorate cubes are my real worry, for even without violent exercise, the day's endless tramping burned a dangerous number. I feel weak from my forced economies in oxygen and from my constantly mounting thirst. When I reduce my food, I suppose I shall feel still weaker. There is something damnable, something uncanny about this labyrinth. I could swear that I had eliminated certain turns through charting, and yet each new trial belies some assumption I had thought established. Never before did I realize how lost we are without visual landmarks. A blind man might do better, but for most of us, sight is the king of the senses. The effect of all these fruitless wanderings is one of profound discouragement. I can understand how poor Dwight must have felt. His corpse is now just a skeleton, and the Syphocliths and the Ackmans and Farnoth flies are gone. The Efgen weeds are nipping the leather clothing to pieces, for they were longer and faster growing than I had expected. 
and all the while those relays of tentacled starers stand gloatingly around the barrier, laughing at me and enjoying my misery. Another day, and I shall go mad if I do not drop dead from exhaustion. However, there is nothing to do but persevere. Dwight would have got out if he had kept on a minute longer. It is just possible that somebody from Terra Nova will come looking for me before long, although this is only my third day out. My muscles ache horribly, and I can't seem to rest at all lying down in this loathsome mud. Last night, despite my terrific fatigue, I slept only fitfully, and tonight, I fear, will be no better. I live in an endless nightmare, poised between waking and sleeping, yet neither truly awake nor truly asleep. My hand shakes. I can write no more for the time being. That circle of feeble glow torches is hideous. Late Afternoon, 6.15 Substantial progress. Looks good. Very weak and did not sleep much till daylight. Then I dozed till dawn, though without being at all rested. No rain, and thirst leaves me very weak. Ate an extra food tablet to keep me going, but without water, it didn't help much. I dared to try a little of the slime water just once, but it made me violently sick and left me even thirstier than before. Must save chlorate cubes, so I'm nearly suffocating for lack of oxygen. Can't walk much of the time, but managed to crawl in the mud. About 2 p.m., I thought I recognized some passages and got substantially nearer to the corpse, or skeleton, than I had been since the first day's trials. I was sidetracked once in a blind alley, but recovered the main trail with the aid of my chart and notes. The trouble with these jottings is that there are so many of them. They must cover three feet of the record scroll and I have to stop for long periods to untangle them. My head is weak from thirst, suffocation, and exhaustion, and I cannot understand all I have set down. Those damnable green things keep staring and laughing with their tentacles, and sometimes they gesticulate in a way that makes me think they share some terrible joke just beyond my perception. It was three o'clock when I really struck my stride. There was a doorway which, according to my notes, I had not traversed before, and, when I tried it, I found I could crawl circuitously toward the weed-twined skeleton. The route was a sort of spiral, much like that by which I had first reached the central chamber. Whenever I came to a lateral doorway or junction, I would keep to the course which seemed best to repeat that original journey. As I circled nearer and nearer to my gruesome landmark, the watchers outside intensified their cryptic gesticulations and sardonic, silent laughter. Evidently, they saw something grimly amusing in my progress, perceiving, no doubt, how helpless I would be in any encounter with them. I was content to leave them to their mirth, for although I realized my extreme weakness, I counted on the flame pistol and its numerous extra magazines to get me through the vile reptilian phalanx. Hope now soared high, but I did not attempt to rise to my feet. Better crawl now and save my strength for the coming encounter with the man-lizards. My advance was very slow, and the danger of straying into some blind alley very great. 
but nonetheless I seemed to curve steadily toward my osseous goal. The prospect gave me new strength, and for the nonce I ceased to worry about my pain, my thirst, and my scant supply of cubes. The creatures were now all massing around the entrance, gesturing, leaping, and laughing with their tentacles. Soon, I reflected, I would have to face the entire horde, and perhaps such reinforcements as they would receive from the forest. I am now only a few yards from the skeleton, and am pausing to make this entry before emerging and breaking through the noxious band of entities. I feel confident that with my last ounce of strength, I can put them to flight despite their numbers, for the range of this pistol is tremendous. Then, a camp on the dry moss at the plateau's edge, and in the morning, a weary trip through the jungle to Terra Nova. I shall be glad to see living men and the buildings of human beings again. The teeth of that skull gleam and grin horribly. Toward night, 6.15 Horror and despair, baffled again. After making the previous entry, I approached still closer to the skeleton, but suddenly encountered an intervening wall. I had been deceived once more, and was apparently back where I had been three days before on my first futile attempt to leave the labyrinth. Whether I screamed aloud, I do not know. Perhaps I was too weak to utter a sound. I merely lay dazed in the mud for a long period while the greenish things outside leaped and laughed and gestured. After a time, I became more fully conscious. My thirst and weakness and suffocation were fast gaining on me, and with my last bit of strength, I put a new cube in the electrolyzer, recklessly and without regard for the needs of my journey to Terra Nova. The fresh oxygen revived me slightly and enabled me to look about more alertly. It seemed as if I were slightly more distant from poor Dwight than I had been at the first disappointment, and I dully wondered if I could be in some other corridor a trifle more remote. With this faint shadow of hope, I laboriously dragged myself forward, but after a few feet encountered a dead end as I had on the former occasion. This, then, was the end. Three days had taken me nowhere, and my strength was gone. I would soon go mad from thirst, and I could no longer count on cubes enough to get me back. I feebly wondered why the nightmare things had gathered so thickly around the entrance as they mocked me. Probably this was part of the mockery, to make me think I was approaching an egress, which they knew did not exist. I shall not last long, though I am resolved not to hasten matters as Dwight did. His grinning skull has just turned toward me, shifted by the groping of one of the effjaweeds that are devouring his leather suit. The ghoulish stare of those empty eye sockets is worse than the staring of those lizard horrors. It lends a hideous meaning to the dead, white-toothed grin. I shall lie very still in the mud and save all the strength I can. This record which I hope may reach and warn those who come after me, will soon be done. After I stop writing, I shall rest a long while. Then, when it is too dark for those frightful creatures to see, I shall muster up my last reserves of strength 
and try to toss the record scroll over the wall to the intervening corridor or to the plane outside. I shall take care to send it towards the left, where it will not hit the leaping band of mocking beleaguers. Perhaps it will be lost forever in the thin mud, but perhaps it will land in some widespread clump of weeds and ultimately reach the hands of men. If it does survive to be read, I hope it may do more than merely warn men of this trap. I hope it may teach our race to let those shining crystals stay where they are. They belong to Venus alone. Our planet does not truly need them, and I believe we have violated some obscure and mysterious law, some law buried in the arcane of the cosmos in our attempt to take them. Who can tell what dark, potent, and widespread forces spur on these reptilian things who guard their treasures so strangely? Dwight and I have paid, as others have paid and will pay. But it may be that these scattered deaths are only the prelude of greater horrors to come. Let us leave to Venus that which belongs only to Venus. I am very near death now, and fear I may not be able to throw the scroll when dusk comes. If I cannot, I suppose the man-lizards will seize it, for they will probably realize what it is. They will not wish anyone to be warned of the labyrinth, and they will not know that my message holds a plea in their own behalf. As the end approaches, I feel more kindly towards the things. In the scale of cosmic entity, who can say which species stands higher or more nearly approaches a space-wide organic norm, theirs or mine? I have just taken the great crystal out of my pouch to look at in my last moments. It shines fiercely and menacingly in the red rays of the dying day. The leaping horde have noticed it, and their gestures have changed in a way I cannot understand. I wonder why they keep clustered around the entrance instead of concentrating at a still closer point in the transparent wall. I am growing numb and cannot write much more. Things whirl around me, yet I do not lose consciousness. Can I throw this over the wall? That crystal glows so, yet the twilight is deepening. Dark, very weak. They are still laughing and leaping around the doorway and have started those hellish glow torches. Are they going away? I dreamed I heard a sound. Light in the sky. Report of Wesley P. Miller, Support Group A, Venus Crystal Company. Terra Nova on Venus, 6-16. Our operative... A-49, Kenton J. Stanfield, of 5317 Marshall Street, Richmond, Virginia, left Terra Nova on 612 for a short-term trip indicated by detector. Due back 13th or 14th, did not appear by evening of 15th, so scouting plane FR-58 with five men under my command set out at 8 p.m. to follow route with detector. Needle showed no change from earlier readings. Followed Needle to Ericinian Highland. Played strong searchlights all the way. Triple range flame guns and D-radiation cylinders 
could have dispersed any ordinary hostile force of natives or any dangerous aggregation of carnivorous scoras. When over the open plain on Eryx, we saw a group of moving lights which we knew were native glow torches. As we approached, they scattered into the forest, probably seventy-five to a hundred in all. Detector indicated crystal on spot where they had been. Sailing low over the spot, our lights picked out objects on the ground. Skeleton tangled in effigy weeds, in complete body ten feet from it. Brought plane down near bodies, and corner of wing crashed on unseen obstruction. Approaching bodies on foot, we came up short against a smooth, invisible barrier which puzzled us enormously. Feeling along it near the skeleton, we struck an opening, beyond which was a space with another opening leading to the skeleton. The latter, though robbed of clothing by weeds, had one of the company's numbered metal helmets beside it. It was Operative B-9, Frederick N. Dwight of Koenig's division, who had been out of Terra Nova for two months on a long commission. Between this skeleton and the complete body, there seemed to be another wall, but we could easily identify the second man as Stanfield. He had a record scroll in his left hand and a pen in his right, and seemed to have been writing when he died. No crystal was visible, but the detector indicated a huge specimen near Stanfield's body. We had great difficulty in getting at Stanfield, but finally succeeded. The body was still warm, and a great crystal lay beside it, covered by the shallow mud. We at once studied the record scroll in the left hand and prepared to take certain steps based on its data. The contents of the scroll forms the long narrative prefixed to this report, a narrative whose main descriptions we have verified and which we append as an explanation of what was found. The later parts of this account show mental decay, but there is no reason to doubt the bulk of it. Stanfield obviously died of a combination of thirst, suffocation, cardiac strain, and psychological depression. His mask was in place and freely generating oxygen despite an alarmingly low cube supply. Our plane being damaged, we sent a wireless and called out Anderson with repair plane PG-7, a crew of wreckers, and a set of blasting materials. By morning, FH-58 was fixed and went back under Anderson carrying the two bodies and the crystal. We shall bury Dwight and Stanfield in the company graveyard and ship the crystal to Chicago on the next earthbound liner. Later, we shall adopt Stanfield's suggestion, the sound one in the saner, earlier part of his report, and bring across enough troops to wipe out the natives altogether. With a clear field, there can be scarcely any limit to the amount of crystal we can secure. In the afternoon, we studied the invisible building, or trap, with great care, exploring it with the aid of long guiding cords and preparing a complete chart for our archives. We were much impressed by the design and shall keep specimens of the substance for chemical analysis. All such knowledge will be useful when we take over the various cities of the natives. Our Type C diamond drills were able to bite into the unseen material, and wreckers are now planting dynamite preparatory to a thorough blasting. Nothing will be left when we are done. The edifice forms a distinct menace to aerial and other possible traffic. 
In considering the plan of the labyrinth, one is impressed not only with the irony of Dwight's fate, but with that of Stanfield as well. When trying to reach the second body from the skeleton, we could find no access on the right, but Markham found a doorway from the first inner space some fifteen feet past Dwight, and four or five past Stanfield. Beyond this was a long hall which we did not explore till later, but on the right-hand side of that wall was another doorway leading directly to the body. Stanfield could have reached the outside entrance by walking twenty-two or twenty-three feet if he had found the opening which lay directly behind him, an opening which he overlooked in his exhaustion and despair. Well, this story was written in January 1936 and first published in Weird Tales magazine in October 1939. The story, written in first-person narrative, is Lovecraft's first and only foray into science fiction. The name of the story's main character, Kenton J. Stanfield, closely resembles that of its co-author Kenneth J. Sterling. Irx, or the Ericinian Highland, is a vast plateau on Venus. Unlike the actual planet, Lovecraft's Venus has a tropical climate and is filled with lush, swampy jungles, though its atmosphere is poisonous to humans, while at the same time not so dangerous as to require hermetically sealed spacesuits. The themes of prejudice, religious intolerance, and discrimination are evident in the story. The references in the story to wriggling Ackmans and Efjaweeds are believed to be jokes aimed at Forrest J. Ackerman, a correspondent with whom Lovecraft feuded over Ackerman's criticism of a Clark Ashton Smith story. The story contains other in-jokes, including references to Farnoth flies, for Weird Tales editor Farnoth Wright. Sterling, who had befriended Lovecraft in the previous year, gave Lovecraft a draft of the story in 1936. The draft included the idea of an invisible maze, a concept Sterling recalled as being derived from the story The Monster God of Mammoth by Edward Hamilton, published in the August 1926 issue of Weird Tales, which featured an invisible building in the Sahara Desert. Lovecraft thoroughly rewrote Sterling's draft, lengthening the story to 12,000 words, from an original 6 to 8,000. Though the original draft does not survive today, most of the prose in the published work is believed to be Lovecraft's. The story seems to have been rejected by Weird Tales, Astounding Stories, Blue Book, Argosy, Wonder Stories, and possibly Amazing Stories. After Lovecraft's death, it was resubmitted to Weird Tales and finally published in its October 1939 issue. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the story for this evening. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to us via our email at bygonetales at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook at Bygone Tales Podcast, or you can always find us on our website, which is at mccartneylane.com. Just click on the link for podcasts and the link for Bygone Tales. Each episode has its own comment section, so feel free to stop by and leave a comment, and if you have any questions, we will try to answer as soon as possible. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on either iTunes or Stitcher. Every review you leave increases our notoriety and gets us more listeners. Thank you again, and until next time. 
Hey, do you like books? Do you know someone who likes books? I'm going to guess if you're listening to this podcast, the answer to one or both of those questions is yes. Sometimes it can be hard to find those unique gifts. Well, I have a solution for you. I want to present to you Shelf Life Books and Games. They can be found at Shelf Life Rare. It's an eBay store. They have a wonderful selection of signed and limited edition sci-fi and fantasy books, as well as some first editions. Their stock changes on a fairly regular basis, so it's a good idea to keep checking back from time to time, and you never know what kind of little hidden gem you may find floating around there. So, if you're looking for a rare or unique gift, go on over to Shelf Life Rare at eBay and check out their selection. You never know what you may find. You can find the link to their store in our show notes.